come now to read um, the Bible for this morning. It comes from Ephesians, chapter 6, verses 1 to 4. Ephesians 6, 1 to 4. And it says this, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment, with a promise, so that it may go well with you and that you may enjoy long life on the earth. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. That's God's Word. Friends, uh, we are looking at the value of fathers this morning uh, on Father's Day, and uh, I say it's a great privilege to be a father of three daughters and to, to love them, to serve them, and to grow through my relationship with them as well. You know, uh, Stephen Bidolph is an Australian author, an activist and psychologist who has written many influential books in their whole idea of parenting and uh, manhood and boyhood and so on. And he says, the role of the father has sunk to a very low point. Are fathers even necessary? People ask. According to some feminists, he says, a world without men would be a world of fat, happy women, to which we would add and very screwed up children. We argue that girls need fathers for very specific reasons in their development, reasons that cannot be fulfilled by mothers on their own. Even more importantly, we believe that boys who do not get very active fathering, either by their own fathers or someone else who is willing to step in, will never get their lives as men to work. He writes, it's as simple and as absolute as that. Friends, it was the former U.S. President Barack Obama who said similar things. And uh, at a Father's Day event in, I think, 2009 it was. He says, fathers are our first teachers and coaches. They're our mentors and our role models. They set an example of success and they push us to succeed. They encourage us when we're struggling. And they love us even when we disappoint. And they stand by us when nobody else will. And when fathers are absent, when they abandon their responsibilities to their children, we know the damage that that does to our families. Some of you know the statistics, he writes. Children who grow up without fathers are more likely to drop out of school and wind up in prison. They're more likely to have substance abuse problems, run away from home and become teenage parents themselves. And I say this as someone who grew up without a father in my own life. I had a heroic mum and wonderful grandparents who helped raise me and my sister, and it's because of them that I'm able to stand here today. But despite all the extraordinary love and attention, that doesn't mean that I didn't feel my father's absence. That's something that leaves a hole in a child's heart that a government cannot fill. If we want our children to succeed in life, we need fathers to step up. We need fathers to understand that their work doesn't end with conception, that what truly makes a man a father is the ability to raise a child and invest in that child. We need fathers to be involved in their kids' lives, not just when it's easy, not just during the afternoons in the park or at the zoo when it's all fun and games, but when it's hard, when young people are struggling and there aren't any quick fixes or easy answers. That's when young people need compassion and patience, as well as a little bit of tough love. Well, friends, Stephen Bedolf uh, surveyed thousands of Australian men 
And this is what he found in terms of the relationship with their fathers. Only 10% of men have a sustaining and close relationship with their father, one in 10. 30% rarely, if ever, speak to their fathers and have been estranged for years. That's devastating, isn't it? Another 30% see their fathers, but the exchange is negative, full of put-downs. The remaining 30% have a nice relationship. You know what it's like visiting regularly, talking about nothing deeper than the football or the lawnmower. And he says, next time you're with a group of men and you're talking about fathers, if you want to get into deep water, ask them how they get along with their fathers. It's an area of enormous hurt and confusion. Fathering matters. Investment in our children matters. And in our grandchildren matters. We need life-giving fathers because there's great value in fatherhood. And Ephesians uh, 6, 1 to 4 just gives us a few insights and a few hints here. And firstly, we are to live to bring hope rather than frustration. He says, fathers, do not exasperate your children. The ESV says, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. Or NEB, don't goad your children to resentment. Colossians 3.21 says, fathers, do not embitter your children or they will become discouraged. Now, the Amplified Version really puts all of this together in one. And it says, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. And in brackets, this is an addition, do not exasperate them to the point of resentment with demands that are trivial or unreasonable or humiliating or abusive, nor by showing favoritism or indifference to any of them. I think the Amplified Version has written a little sermon just in there but bring them up tenderly with loving kindness in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Now, Paul recognizes, even as he writes, that parents can be tempted to misuse their God-given authority. And they don't love or parent lovingly. And so what they do is embitter their children to anger, and they provoke them to anger. And the kids don't want to be with their father. They don't want nothing to do with their fathers. Because what they found is anger and put-downs and hate rather than love. They discourage whenever they think about their fathers. They don't think of hope and life. They think of discouragement and pain. Paul says, dads, no, 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 don't be like that. So how do we do that? We ignore it. We may ignore our children or make irritating or unreasonable demands. We may be harsh or cruel at the extreme. We do may show favoritism or overindulgence. We may humiliate or suppress children. They're never quite good enough. We may use sarcasm and ridicule, and they hear every word and every tone. We may just constantly nag because we're too tired and frustrated with life and uh, the short word, the quick word, we condemn. And we may be insensitive to our children's needs and sensibilities because all of them are a little bit different. We can't treat them all the same way. We need to take into account their personalities, their temperaments, and so on. But what is it that children crave? If we're not going to frustrate, we're not going to exasperate, them, we're not going to provoke them to anger, what are some key things that children need? And we, we learn from the Bible and we learn from, uh, from psychologists as well. Number one, children crave a safe, happy family. Isn't that true? 
so much brokenness in our society. I mean, children who are, who are torn apart by parents fighting and arguing. And the first duty of a father is to love and cherish the mother of his children. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Ephesians 5.25 Children will find hope rather than discouragement when husbands love their wives as Christ loves the church, sacrificially. You want to provoke your kids to anger, then abuse your wife, physically, emotionally, psychologically, financially, spiritually. Just abuse her and see what happens. See how you can provoke your children. Treat her with disrespect. Treat her as less important than you. Squash her hopes, her dreams and aspirations. Friends, I've seen the fear and frustration and anger in the eyes of children who don't experience a safe, happy family. They see bitterness and fighting in the family rather than love, and it breaks them. Children crave a safe, happy family. We're able to create those types of families by the grace of God and the work of the Holy Spirit as we love one another. They crave love and approval. They want to know that they're, they're loved by their parents, their parents approve them. That's part of love, isn't it? They want that. They want to feel that. They want to see it. They want to hear it. And Bedulf writes, nothing is more powerful in, in the psychology of child, childhood than the need for love and approval. Unless a child receives clear and tangible demonstrations of these, then he or she will wither like a flower without water. It's as basic as that. And he gives this illustration. He says, I've watched tiny children in hovels in Calcutta dancing for their family and friends who respond with warm applause and hugs. I've also watched Australian children bring home their report cards from their expensive private schools. Their faces eager for praise only to receive cool, critical appraisals from their performance-orientated, uptight parents, he says. How many children and adults, and maybe you're this adult out there listening today, who are angry still at your father, who never expressed his approval of you? And today, I know that some of you, maybe many of you, are still frustratingly trying to prove to dad that you are worthy of his approval. And you don't get it. Friends, words can, words can build or destroy. Speak words that build up. Bring a smile to the face of your children. And children crave authenticity in their fathers. They can pick out hypocrisy, can't they? And kids are pretty smart. If you say one thing and do another, they pick it up. You see, you can be nice and spiritual at church or at Bible study, but they see you the rest of the time as well. And if there's a difference, they know. They don't like hypocrisy. They can see it from a distance. If children crave the involvement and support of their fathers. Don't leave it all to the mothers. Mothers' roles are so important. But today we're talking to fathers. They need your support. Bidulf writes, as early as six or seven years of age, the primary identification of the boy must switch. He will love and relate intensely with his mother, but he's not hers anymore. 
He actively wants to be with and like his father. He can only do this if his father is around, available and interested in sharing time with him. The father needs to be doing things with him, enjoying sharing life with him and challenging and testing him, but never wounding or belittling him. And what about girls? Just this morning, as I was reading my notes before I came in, there's a Sydney Morning Herald article about the importance of fathering girls. It says the research, again, more psychologists, it, it's all in there. The research shows that a strong father-daughter relationship is really good for self-esteem and for self-worth. It models, he says, what a healthy and respectful relationship should look like for that daughter growing up. And Abedulf writes, daughters need special things from fathers. One of these is affirmation. It means the feeling of being flattered, admired, but never invaded or exploited, so that they can practice conversation and mutual admiration with a safe male. Through talking with their fathers and other older men, daughters can gain assurance, feel worthwhile, and know that they do not need to be the first bow that, or need the first bow that comes their way. A realistic understanding of male qualities and male forebills is priceless for a girl. To the quality of her, of her mother's and father's relationship is important to a girl. Knowing that her father aligns with her mother at a deep level and can't be seduced or undermined means that she recognizes boundaries. She learns how to say no and take no for an answer. If mum and dad get on well, she'll want at least that quality of relationship in her own marriage. Because fathers of teenage daughters will naturally feel some protectiveness and jealousy. Yeah, I know, I've been there. We're going to protect them, right? We know what's out there. If this is moderate, he says, it will work quite well. It doesn't hurt for boyfriends to be moderately terrified. Some clear safety limits can be set appropriate for the daughter's age and stage. That a friend of mine who is divorced from his first wife learned that his 13-year-old daughter was at a party with some people who were far beyond her depth to deal with. He quickly gathered two large male friends and went and got her. She made a token complaint, but was basically relieved to be out of that party. He says if you're a dad of girls, at the same time a father has to guard against being jealous out of his own need. He needs to envisage his daughter moving out, being strong in making her own choices, having a happy life. No one will ever be good enough for her, but luckily it isn't his choice. So true, isn't it? And children crave fathers who take time to listen. I was reading a book by a fellow called Don Schmeyer in his book, What's a Father to Do, it's called. He said, I've heard it from kids again and again. The number one need expressed loud and clear from today's youth is, would somebody please listen to me? They're talking about empathetic listening. I kind of, I hear you, that connects, connects with their feelings and their emotions. You know, when a child's speaking to you, and you're looking in their direction, but you're really, your mind is on 10 other things, and then they say, Dad, are you listening? And you say, oh yeah, I'm listening, and you're not listening at all. They pick it up. They're clever, those little kids. I remember when Chloe was little, maybe four or five, and uh, she would often say, why doesn't anyone listen to me? And her head would drop, the tears would start to flow, and she would storm off. Listen, 
take time, put the phone down, turn off the television, stop playing whatever games you do on computer, stop and listen. But secondly, we need to invest ourselves in growing, mature, God-honoring disciples of Jesus. He says, fathers, do not exasperate your children. We're talking about the positive things rather than negative. Instead, bring them up in the training and discipline of the Lord. Now, this instruction is for Christian dads, right? It's written to, to men who know Jesus. It assumes you love and trust in Jesus. It assumes you understand the cross and your need of forgiveness, that you have a relationship with God through the, the finished work of Jesus on the cross. And we're going to share the Lord's Supper in a moment. It is, assumes you know the Heavenly Father, who is the ultimate model and strength for you. It assumes you are giving it all for the glory of Jesus and the spread of his fame. It's writing to Christian men and saying, men, you have a responsibility. And the Greek word here, ektrepho, means, which we translate, bring them up, means literally to nourish and feed. Nourish and feed your children in these ways, he says. And notes, it's a father's responsibility to bring them up. And, and other places talk about a mother's responsibility. Mums and dads are raising their children, educating their children. And it's not enough simply to send them to church for Robin to teach them about Jesus or for your Christian school to teach them about Jesus. It's important that you, as the father and as parents, teach them about Jesus. We don't abdicate responsibility to someone else. I mean, we value all the other things that the school, Christian schools maybe, and your uh, kids' church, and maybe holiday club and kids' clubs uh, invest in your children. And we thank God for all those who invest in our children. Because in one sense, it takes a village to raise a child. But don't abdicate your responsibility. Take time to raise them. So you can't nurture your children in the training and instruction of the Lord if you don't know the Lord nor His instruction. And so therefore, we say to Christian men and Christian dads that you need to be in the Word. You need to be praying. You need to be in a home group. You need to be worshipping God. You need to be reading, studying, growing in your faith relationship with Jesus. Because the more you are like Jesus, the greater your influence will be on your children. And he talks about discipline or uh, training by discipline, even by punishment. There is a place of correction of the young, of our children. And I'm not going to give you a list of 20 ways in which you're to, to discipline your children today. But there are books on that, Boundaries with Children. The good books will give you great advice on how to raise children, how to teach them to do the right thing and so on. Children need boundaries, so you need to have some, a system in place that works. Talk together as husband and wife about what are our policies, how do we raise our children, what, what, what happens if they break rules and, and so on in our family. Discuss them together, be fair, be consistent, be loving, be filled with grace and be tough when you need to be tough. And then teach them. Here it refers to verbal education. We need to bring up our children in the instruction of the Lord, he says. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today to be upon your hearts. Impress them upon your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. In other words, Deuter the book of Deuteronomy says that godly thinking and godly living 
And it needs to be permeated with the Word of God. Like the Word of God speaks to us at all parts of life. We teach this truth in the home, on the road, in kids' church, in kids' clubs, in church. We teach it everywhere. So you can always quote the Word of God and make it appropriate. But what do we teach them? Well, the Word of God says this, that whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. We want our children to know that whatever they do is for the glory of God, that God's glory is supreme. That's where you start. God is everything. He's creator. He's redeemer. He's savior. He's the one who's coming back to take us to be with him. It's his glory is our primary mission. His worship is our goal. We want our children to know that they are not God of the universe, that the parents are not God of the universe, but there is a God who is above us. They need to know that we are saved by grace through the cross of Christ. Despite our sinfulness, God is gracious. They need to know that Christ is all our, our all-consuming passion, that he is the center of our lives. It's not our football team. It's not our career. Uh, it's not our family. No, your family is not God. Your career is not God. Your sporting team is not God. And if you support the dragons, you're thankful for that, right? But Jesus is at the center of our lives. That life is to be lived in light of eternity. This life is preparation for the next. Enjoy it, but work in anticipation of the next. And the happiest people in the world, they need to learn, are, are those who know God, not those who have the most toys. We want our kids to know that knowing God is very precious. We want them to know that the Bible is God's word. They ought to read it, learn it, memorize it live by it. They need to know that prayer expresses our dependence upon God. It builds our relationship and says to God, 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 I cannot do anything in my own strength. God, I'm relying upon you. Teach them through prayer. And God has a world focus who wants us to be world Christians who serve the lost and the poor. And so we want our children to have a world perspective and to see that there are missionaries traveling around the world to take the gospel to the lost and the broken. Because Jesus is the only way to heaven. We want them to know that when the poor are suffering, that we're going to sponsor a child or two or three. We're going to give money to help those suffering in Afghanistan. We're going to help those in Haiti. We're going to do whatever is necessary. That Our children need to know that we invest money to care for others and to send workers into other places. They need to see that. They need to know that life is to live sacrificially in Christ's service. We have spiritual gifts and talents and abilities. We don't keep them for ourselves, but we serve others through them. They need to know that life is to be characterized by grace and mercy, not criticism and a judgmental spirit. That as God has shown us grace, we show grace to others. They need to understand that suffering, trials, prejudice, rejection, and mis mistreatment is expected of his disciples. So be prepared, young people. Be prepared, son and daughter. That someone might mock you for following Jesus. Someone might put you down for following Jesus. Someone may not invite you to a party because you follow Jesus. Prepare them. And evangelism and global mission are primary. And there are other things, right? I just want to say to you, we have an opportunity to invest in the next generation which will have an impact on all of eternity. But we teach it and we model it. It's not enough just to teach it, we must model it.
because our kids are watching us. They will know how we spend our time. They will know how we spend our money. They will know how we spend our gifts and talents. Finally, let me conclude. It's always good in all of life, in all of the choices you make, to play the movie forward. Because the way you act now, the way you invest now, will have an impact later. What will your children, what will our children look like in 10 years' time or 15 years' time? Have you thought about that? You might have a child who's 5. What are they going to be like at 20? You have a child who's 10. What are they going to be like at 30? Play it forward. Play the movie forward. What do you need to invest in now so they come out the other end, people who love Jesus, serve Jesus, invest in the things that really matter to God? Because if we're too busy with our careers and our houses and our leisure pursuits, and we don't invest in our children in a God-honoring way, then we will reap the results. And too often, we are busy and we play the movie forward and our children love the world and they love its pleasures and its attractions. And they are absent from church. That will break our hearts Jesus is no longer their consuming passion, but they chase career, they chase money, they chase other dreams. We will have to live with their sexual immorality and their idolatry, their non-Christian marriages, their pursuit of worldly glory. Play the movie forward. Friends, let me say, but there's no guarantee, even if we do the right things, they will necessarily become Christians. People do have their own choice. They make their choices. But the way in which we raise them can have a significant influence on who they become under God. Friends, we still need fathers. God-glorifying, holy, radical, Christ-imitating fathers. Fathers who nourish through training and instruction with love. May God help us by His grace to be such fathers. And friends, I'm thankful it's the mercy of God and the grace of God that enables us to live like this, to make a difference. And I'm thankful that it is the love and mercy of God that makes possible, firstly, our relationship with God.